invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 24. Matthew, chapter 24. I think without question that it's a good exercise to realize that the Lord loves us, cares for us, understands us, knows and cares and understands and loves in spite of all the things that he knows about us. And in spite of our waywardness and wickedness, he's got a great program that is being worked out. As we read through not all but most of this chapter, I would like us to be aware of the fact that in a special way that these are God-breathed words. They're not given simply to fill up a book. It's not simply informational, but it's directive. If you were to go to the beach on some warm summer day, you would prepare for it. If you were to go skiing on some cool winter afternoon, you would prepare for it. The fact is, we're on a journey, and our destination is heaven itself, the Lord's presence. And we do well to prepare for that. As we approach the scriptures, again, I would like to hold it over us. I'd have trouble reading it that way, but I would like to hold that as the authority over us. This is not for us to say, well, this is my opinion, or this is what a certain book says, but this is what God says. And notice what, what is unfolded here in chapter 24 and verse 1. And Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And as they sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? Now that, that building wasn't completed. It would ultimately take 84 years to build in total. It would only last for six years. When the Romans came, somebody had spread the rumor that there were gold and jewels and so on in some of those great big blocks of stone that had been hollowed out and they'd put all kinds of gold and jewelry and stuff in it. And so they broke it all apart to find that. And of course, there wasn't anything there. It was quite a work of art, quite an engineering feat. Notice now in verse 3, tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and of, and of the end of the world? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars, see that ye be not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in diverse places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise, and shall deceive many, and... Because iniquity shall abound, 
the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand, then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake those days shall be shortened. Then if any man shall say unto you, Lo, here is Christ, or there, believe it not. For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Behold, I have told you before. Wherefore, if they shall say unto you, Behold, he is in the desert, go not forth. Behold, he is in the street chambers, secret chambers, believe it not. For as the lightning cometh out of the east and shineth even unto the west, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For wheresoever the carcass is, there will the eagles be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days shall the sun be darkened, and the moon shall not give her light, and the stars shall fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn a parable of the fig tree. When his branch is yet tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. So likewise ye, when ye shall see all these things, know that it is near, even at the doors. Verily I say unto you, this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, no, not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Then, just before the revelation, then shall two be in the field. The one shall be taken and the other left. That's not the rapture. Two women shall be grinding at the mill. The one shall be taken and the other left. The one taken is taken in judgment. The one left goes on into the millennial kingdom. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. Let's take a moment and ask God to guide us as we look at his word.
Our Father, we thank you that you have not only given but preserved your word down through the centuries of time and have given us the opportunity to explore its wonders and its wealth of truth and meaning. Help us this morning to grow in appreciation for the Lord Jesus. As we consider the, the greatness of his power, the perfections of his program, the graciousness of his person, help us to honor your name as we consider these verses and the truths at hand. May they impact the way we think and speak and act and work and relate one to the other. May something of his grace perfume our lives and all that we do. For we ask this together in Jesus' name. Amen. It's an interesting study to consider the coming of the Lord Jesus. Coming, first of all, in the Incarnation. Coming to Bethlehem. Coming as a baby. Coming as the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world, as we know from John 1.29 and 136. It's also good for us to meditate on the fact that he's coming to call away his bride, to come away, to bring away all of those who've belonged to him, who've been saved, to have been bought with the price of his life's blood. We might consider him as the Lamb of God, but it's also fair for us to consider him as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. It's good for us to think of him as the sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. But it's also good for us to look at him as the sovereign who will one day rule across this world scene. Sometimes I think it's good for us to use a little sanctified imagination. Not in class, but sometimes, in some places. To realize what it would be like for people to turn on their radio or whatever devices they may have in that time and listen to good news, listen to prosperity and blessings and peace and encouragement. He's coming one day to be not the sacrifice for sin, but the sovereign over those who've been saved. It is also very important for us to distinguish between the rapture in which he comes in the clouds, in which he comes in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, in which he catches away, catches up those who've been saved. When he comes at the revelation, every eye will see him. The rapture, no one sees him. But at the revelation, every eye will see him. When the rapture happens, it's so quick, there's no time for emotion, for thought, for mourning. But at his revelation... Those who see him will mourn for him, as we know from Zechariah 12.10. We also read the same thing here in our passage. At the revelation, he comes as a monarch. He comes to rule. He comes, as we know, with a sword. He comes in judgment. He comes to destroy the nations in their rebellion against him. Today is a time for us to prepare to meet him in the clouds, to prepare to live and reign with him millennially, because we'll be there with him at his revelation. Now, in looking at our text, in the preceding chapter, just going back to verse 37, Jesus was standing there looking at Jerusalem, and he wept over the city. Notice what he said. 
O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I, I wanted to, but you wouldn't let me. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and you would not. What was wrong with Jerusalem? They would not allow him to gather them like so many little chickens under a mother hen's wings. That's the background. I'd like you to notice in light of the first two verses that we read in Matthew 24 that the present is important. Every day is important. Every hour, every friendship, every relationship, every, every book that we read, especially theology books. But every book that we read, everything we do is important. Why? Because it has future implications. The present is important in light of the future. All of Jesus' teaching is to be received, and to be received lovingly and with appreciation. In verse 1, I have made this observation, that it is possible to see details but not see devotion or dedication. Where do I get that from? These men, who had been now with Jesus for some time, they were saying to him, look at the buildings, perhaps looking at the, the white blocks of stone glistening in the hot Middle Eastern sun. I'm just using a little imagination. Maybe it was a rainy day. Did they think that Jesus had never seen those stones before? What were they thinking in saying, look at those stones, look how they're beautiful and, and under construction? That building wasn't completed until 64 A.D. It took 84 years to build. They were looking at details. They were looking at blocks of stone and the temple and the activities that went on there. They were looking at details, but not seeing what should have been seen. What was the temple for? It was for the Lord. It was for spiritual ministry. It wasn't an end in itself. It was simply a means to accommodate an end. They were looking at details but didn't see the devotion, the dedication, the commitment that should have been associated with that place. Jesus had just left there. And I wonder, and, and perhaps you have too, how many people realize that here is the greatest teacher that ever lived, ever would live in their midst? How many took seriously what he had to say? How many really paid attention? Probably not very many. Perhaps they were caught up in the ritual, the routine, more so than the devotion and the dedication that should have been associated with that. In our text, it says, Jesus went out and departed from the temple. Those are, are very sobering words. If Jesus departs from some place, that place is in trouble. And he departed from the temple. He went out deliberately. In verse 2, it is possible to see things without seeing truth. See things and not see truth. Jesus asked them, turn the question around, and he said, 
Do you see all these things? Look beyond the obvious. What was important was not those big blocks of stone. But what was important was what the temple stood for. It's possible for us, folks, today in our day and age, to be so accustomed with our culture, with the norm of what goes on so-called in the average evangelical church, to know the routine, to know when to sit and stand, to know basically what's next and what the order of service will be like, to go through the paces of reading a chapter a day to keep the devil away, to go through all of those things that we take for granted and not see what God is actually doing and preparing in us and for us as time unfolds. Then, beginning in verse 3, I'd like you to notice this observation, that the preaching of eschatology should impact how we live in the present. Now, that's a deduction based on verses 3 down through 51, the rest of the entire chapter. That the preaching of eschatology should impact the way we live in the present. The doctrine of future things has fallen on hard times. There are whole churches that refuse to address this subject. God didn't give us this truth to ignore. If we didn't have this body of truth, then our understanding of God's will and God's work in us and through us would be deficient proportionately. God has given us this to understand and to live in its light. What is most important in life is really our union and communion with the Lord. Could we say that again? What is the most important thing in life? Our union and then our communion with the Lord. All of the other things in life pale into great insignificance by comparison. These disciples needed to know what the future held. They needed to put all the things, the building blocks, all the routine, the rituals, and put it in perspective. Where is it all going? Now, the disciples, when they went out on the Mount of Olives, asked Jesus three questions. Three pretty simple questions, but big answers. You may notice the questions. Now, they're sitting on the Mount of Olives. They're about half a mile away from Jerusalem, and they're looking at the city, they're looking at the temple, and and perhaps listening to the sounds and activities of the day, and maybe the wind blowing through the trees, and so on on the Mount of Olives. The first question, when would the temple be destroyed? When is that going to happen? What would be the sign of your coming? Is there going to be a sign? What sign? What would it look like? And then the third question, what would be the sign of the end of the age? Literally, the age. Well, we might pause for a moment and ask ourselves, what age, what dispensation were they living in? They were living in the time of law. If Jesus' answer concerned a dispensation that they didn't know anything about, because church truth was yet future, the day of Pentecost had not yet occurred, church truth was revealed in Ephesians chapter 3, if 
they didn't know anything about the church, and they didn't, it would be very misleading for Jesus to give them signs to the end of a time period that they didn't know would even exist. He was talking about something they did understand. They knew that they were living in the time of Mosaic law. So the three questions, when would the temple be destroyed? What would be the sign of your coming? And what would be the sign of the end of the age? Now, Jesus answered those questions in part. He began with question three. And then he got to question two, and here he doesn't answer question one. As the disciples were pondering this, Jesus warned them about signs that will occur in the tribulation. The tribulation being the conclusion of the 70 weeks of Daniel. The 70th week, the seven years, one week of seven years, will be unfolded, and it begins right following the rapture. And it runs all the way through until the revelation of Jesus. So Jesus spoke to them about deceivers. He says that believers would need to, and you may notice the words, take heed, lest you be deceived. How do we take heed? Well, he didn't say, here are five points to avoid deception. But he did say, take heed, pay careful attention so that you are not deceived by knowing the truth. Knowing the truth is the greatest defense against error. It may be that, that some would, would seek to deceive the people of God in this time by faulty hermeneutics, by inventing new principles of interpreting Scripture. Possibly. Maybe some would be, would be deceiving people through alleged visions and dreams. Partial truth taken to extreme, to exaggeration. Maybe just plain doctrines of demons, propagated by people who had some degree of credibility and so on. Some deceivers may be just power-hungry individuals who want to dominate individuals and push them around and make them do whatever they want. Maybe some of them will be money-grabbers who will be just trying to get some get-rich-quick scheme. But the first thing that Jesus had to say in light of this body of eschatological truth was be careful or you could be deceived. So we do well to take heed to that. He says many would come claiming to be Christ and they will deceive many. Many. Many who could have been saved but weren't. Many false prophets will arise. New books. New revelations. Something new. Something sensational. False prophets. These false prophets and false Christ will, will have great signs and wonders. They will have an aura of credibility about them. They will be so effective that without divine intervention, they run the risk of deceiving even the people of God, here called the elect. Now keep in mind, elect is a term that is applicable to a variety of different situations. Elect angels, Jesus being the elect servant in Isaiah 42. 
looking at the church, Old Testament saints. Here, tribulation saints. Elect is a term that relates to those who belong to the Lord. False religious leaders will actually claim to be Jesus. Some of you may know the name Lehman Strauss. Lehman Strauss was one of the most popular guest speakers to come on our campus, great saint of God. On one occasion, he was in a lobby, and he was signing books, books that he had just written. And a gentleman walked up to him and, and started quoting word for word from the book of Jeremiah while Lehman Strauss was signing autographing books and passing it back to those who purchased them. And finally, he looked at this gentleman, and, and the man said, Do you know who I am? And Lehman Strauss said, No. And he said, I'm Jesus. And Lehman Strauss said, Show me your hands. And the man walked away. He didn't have the nail prints. False Jesuses. There's not only coming deceivers, but coming distress. Distress that will be global in scope. Be a time of wars and rumors of wars. Life will have little value. People will think nothing of killing one another, destroying human life. Conflict, our text tells us, must come. Why must it come? Because it is evil. Man rebelling against God will run to its logical conclusion, and that's the tribulation where man would self-destruct, in verse 22, that without God's intervention, no human life would survive on earth. That's the, the destination of what took place in the Garden of Eden in that quiet little moment of deciding, yes, I will partake of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. All of the history of humanity will culminate in that time of seven years of great tribulation. We know from Revelation 6 that in one stroke, one quarter of Earth's population will be wiped out. We also know from chapter 9 and verse 18 that one-third of, of what is left will be wiped out. That's half of the world's population. We know from Revelation 16 that there will be great, great hailstones that will weigh somewhere between 90 and 100 pounds will come crashing down on the Earth. Human life destroyed through these events, through the conflicts, through the pestilence, the disease, the shortages, the famines, will take an enormous toll on humanity. And these are called the beginnings of sorrows, beginnings of labor pains. So there's not only the coming deceivers and the coming distress, but in verses 9 and 10 there's the coming danger those who identify with Jesus, those who will claim to be saved, not part of the church, but claim to be redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, they will have a time of unprecedented danger. Martyrdom will be the norm as a testimony. Just keep your finger here in Matthew 24 and go over to Revelation chapter 14 just for a moment. Revelation 14, beginning to read at verse 9. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast, 
Okay? If anyone worships the beast, this is during the tribulation, and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. And they have no rest day nor night who worship the beast and his image and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints." Those who receive the mark of the beast during this time in their forehead or in their right hand will partake of eternal damnation. Those who would dare to stand for the Lord will face martyrdom. Now, some will survive. We know there are 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel in Revelation 7 who are protected by God. But the norm will be martyrdom. In that time, many will be offended by the truth and will betray believers and actually hate the saints of God. Now, we can guess, we can speculate as to why they would do that, but the bottom line is we don't know. Perhaps it will be satanic and demonic in origin, but we know the outcome, and that's what's important, is that they will hate the saints of God. And persecute them strongly. In verses 12 and 13, there's coming disorder. Now, what do I mean by that, disorder? The Bible tells us here in our text that iniquity will abound. And because it will so abound, that the love of many will wax cold. This disorder will affect the area of affections. The area of love is a target of the enemy. He hates it, and he would love to destroy it. What an ironic thing. Godly love needs to be fed. It needs to be cultivated. Godly love needs that. But the love of many will wax cold. Why? Because iniquity, selfishness, pride, anger, jealousy, all of these horrible things will abound. He tells us that those who endure to the end will be saved. He's not talking about eternal security here. He's talking about those who survive the tribulation. They will go on into the millennial kingdom and be with the Lord. In verse 14, there is a coming doctrine. This coming doctrine is the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, and it will be preached in all the world. Perhaps the 144,000 will be there doing that that business. Preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Is that what we preach today? No. We are preaching the gospel of God's grace. That's what people need to hear today. Of how they can be saved through simple faith in the Lord Jesus alone. What a privilege we have today to preach the gospel. Keeping in mind that it is the power of God unto salvation. You may notice also in verses 15 down through 22, the coming dictator, the Antichrist, will will set up a statue of himself, the abomination of desolation, in the temple in Jerusalem. 
It would be a huge body of truth to look at all of the things that relate to the tribulation. We'd have to go back into Ezekiel in chapters 38 and 39. We'd have to look at a lot of the passages in in Zechariah. We'd have to look at some of Malachi, but in summary we can say this, that about halfway through the seven years of tribulation, 42 months or 1260 days, the Antichrist will break his peace agreement with Israel and establish his own image and make Jerusalem his headquarters, at least in part his headquarters at that time. Idolatry. We may consider ourselves today to be too sophisticated to be bowing down to silly idols, but keep in mind in that time, because iniquity will abound, a modern version of idolatry will be very much in vogue at that time. And people will be required to do that. The Bible tells us that for those in Jerusalem, in Judea, in that time, to head for the hills, to go to the mountains, flee to the mountains, don't go back into your house and get your toothbrush, don't go and get your sleeping bag, just run, get out of Jerusalem, go up into the mountains. That's God's instruction for his people at that time. And then he reminds us that then will be great tribulation. God never exaggerates. As the seven years of tribulation unfold, it will get tougher and hotter and more dangerous as the time unfolds. But there is good news in all of this. In verses 27 through 36, there's a coming deliverer, Jesus. The coming revelation of Christ will be bright like lightning, blinding almost, overwhelming. At his revelation, the enemies of Christ will be destroyed. Ezekiel tells us that the blood will flow to the horses' bridles from the south of Jerusalem up into the valley of Megiddo in the north. That's a lot of blood, a lot of destruction, a lot of loss of human life. What a tragedy, humanly speaking. At his revelation... The enemies of Christ and all the armies of the world that come against Israel will be destroyed. And the Bible tells us that the eagles will gather around the dead bodies. And we'll leave the rest to your imagination. They will have their feast. We know from our text that the sun will be darkened. That sounds like Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. The sun darkened. The moon won't give its light. The stars will fall from the heavens. And the powers of the heavens, perhaps demonic hosts, will be shaken at that time. Then Jesus appears. Then he is manifested openly in power and great glory. Not as a little baby to be laid in a manger. To be carried about in his mother's arms. But he's coming as the coming king. One who will rule With a rod of iron. In verse 30, people will mourn when they see him coming, realizing they have rejected him. Realize that they have trampled underfoot the blood of Christ. We know in verse 31 that the angels will gather the elect together and gather them from all over the earth to Jerusalem, to the presence of God. We know in verse 44 that. Jesus' return will be at a time when people are thinking he's not coming. He's never going to come. Too much time has passed. Somehow 
it's a false prophecy or we didn't understand it correctly and so on. And then there is the coming division, verses 37 down through the end of the chapter. The coming division. The days when Jesus returns will be like that of Noah. People going about their daily routines, going about their sinful behavior, mocking perhaps the idea of deliverance, of salvation, of God's judgment, mocking the seriousness of sin, going about their Christ-rejecting ways. And then we know, verses 40 and 41, that one will be taken, they're taken in judgment, and one left, and the one left goes on into the millennial kingdom. Where are those taken, taken to? Well, just jump ahead a little bit and look at Luke chapter 17 and verse 37. Just let me read it for you. And they answered and said unto him, Where, Lord? Asking the same question, where are they going? He said unto them, Wheresoever the body is, thither will the eagles be gathered together. They're taken in death. And will be facing Gehenna fire in due time. In that time, God's truth will have been rejected on a massive scale. People will mock the Bible, reject its author, ridicule holiness, have contempt for holy, godly, loving kindness, and will be enamored with death and destruction. Why has God given us this body of truth? So that we might live in light of it. That we may see people in light of heaven and hell. That we may see people in light of possibly being saved and caught up in the rapture or facing the revelation and that division, the sheep and the goat nations, believer from unbeliever, and the wonders of what eternity will unfold. Folks, we have been saved from this. We've been saved from what is described in Matthew 24 and Luke 17 and Luke 21 and Mark chapter 13. We've been saved from what unfolds between Revelation 4 and Revelation 19. To be saved is not only to be saved from hell, I wouldn't minimize that, but we've been saved from that which is going to face this very sin-troubled earth. How thankful we can be because we're looking for that time when Jesus will return. Let's sing that thought together. What a day that will be.